As I looked out of my window from my apartment last night, as I was going to bed around 2 a.m., the Empire State Building wished me a good night, glowing red. I'm sure many of you saw that as well. Not only did the country wake up to a new legislature, New York woke up to what will most likely be a more conservative Senate. What does this mean for New York? Will Governor Cuomo play well with the GOP-led Senate? Will indicted re-elected lawmakers play a role? What's going to happen with the Moreland Commission? What are some of the most fascinating trends we're seeing after this election? And who did turn out yesterday to vote in New York? I'm Nomi Konst, and this is the Accountability Podcast, the only show dedicated to specifically discussing the corruption plaguing New York. The public deserves the right to know what's happening, and we're here to present you with weekly reports. New York State politics notoriously corrupted. State Senator Malcolm Smith charged with paying bribes. Samson is charged with embezzling mortgage money. Assemblyman Vito Lopez, he was censured for sexual harassment last week. Major corruption scandal involving New York's Governor Cuomo. Shirley Huntley admitted to setting up a sham nonprofit. Skeletons seem to just keep on coming out of the woodwork in New York State these days. Today on a special episode of the Accountability Podcast, we have a panel conversation with two of the sharpest young minds in New York. What did last night say about the electorate, the parties, and our leadership? And what will be the agenda of the next few years? But first, we urge you to learn more about our work at the Accountability Project by following us on Twitter at account underscore project and on Facebook at the Accountability Project. The Accountability Project is a journalistic organization that investigates political misconduct in New York. We are a nonprofit, and we rely on our supporters like you to spread our message. Janos Martin is a lawyer, activist, and born and raised New Yorker. After serving as Dartmouth's first two-term student body president, Janos worked on a number of political campaigns and a major Hurricane Katrina relief effort. After getting his JD at Fordham Law School, Janos worked at the law firm Hogan Levels and for civil rights lawyer Norman Siegel, developing an expertise in campaign finance law before joining the famous Moreland Commission as one of its special counsels. He most recently worked on the midterm elections, turning out the youth vote in swing states. Ben Max is the executive editor of the Gotham Gazette. He's the founder of Decide NYC, a former high school teacher of history, and he's a reoccurring guest now. This is an interesting election. We had the governor winning, totally predictable, but Rob Astorino did fairly well given his lack of support from the Republicans. Oh, my God. I mean, the the fundraising disadvantage that he was at for him to come within, you know, 14-ish points of the governor is quite something, especially when you consider the registration, Democratic to Republican registration gap, and then the money gap and the lack of enthusiasm from, let's say, a Chris Christie, uh, who's, you know, the chair of the Republican Governors Association. Yeah, he did pretty well. Who said he had no chance. I don't support losers. (laughs) Janos, what did you think? You know, when you looked at the map, of New York and you saw where Cuomo won. What I found in particular was really interesting was that Erie County blue, expected, you know, expectedly, and then most of the state was was predominantly red except for a little bit in the Hudson Valley and then obviously downstate. Yeah, it is hard to drive around anywhere in uh, upstate New York without seeing loads of anti-safe act signs. I mean, that this was the opportunity for people to vo- voice their opposition to that and uh, it came through loud and clear. I think the other way Cuomo won last night, though, is by the Republicans taking back the state Senate, which is probably what he always wanted in the end, despite his protestations. Oh. To the contrary. Absolutely. I mean, it'll make it easier to kind of maintain his sort of uh, fiscally conservative, uh, socially liberal agenda without having the pressure of actually having to pass some of those bills. Do you think that he conspired with the, the Republicans at all? Well, I mean, I don't know how much communication, you know, 
there was in terms of conspiring. But I think that just by his behavior, he was sort of tacitly approving of, you know, the Republicans taking over. He did basically the bare minimum, which he often does in all sorts of situations. He basically did the bare minimum of what he could do to then be able to claim that he had done something he said he would do. So this is a pretty typical game for the governor, which is to you know, he, he puts his resources and he puts his efforts towards things that he really wants to make happen. And he clearly did not really want to make uh, a Democratic takeover of the state Senate. And the Women's Equality Party was just a strange wrinkle on this election cycle and, and certainly confusing, I'm sure, to people who don't follow politics closely. I mean, if you listen to him, uh, both his messaging on the air and in mailers that he sent out, it was entirely focused on this women's agenda that he could have passed nine out of 10 provisions last year. And that's the best he's going to get this year um, or next year, rather. Yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's a huge sort of we could trace. There's an amazing story here if we want to trace it step by step. But so much of this comes down to he wanted to try to ensure he wanted every vote. Right? He wants mm-hmm. every he wants every single vote. And so he sort of tried to play this this game to get every vote. It didn't work out for him because of a number of things that happened. But that was sort of capitulating to the WFP to get the their the working families party things to get their endorsement in the first place. But then that put him in a little bit of a corner. So then he said, well, let me create this other party to then kneecap the WFP. You know, mm-hmm. it's all these political games, which in the end basically got him to where he might have been if, you know, none of this would have happened in the first place. It was interesting because, you know, when you read the Times covered, they have animosity. It's very clear they have animosity towards um, Governor Cuomo. And usually they give him a day, you know, after someone's been reelected, whether or not they like him or not, they'll give him a day of like, congratulations, you did a great job. Who actually voted on the Women's Equality Party? You know, if the Times were to criticize anything, I think that they could have broken that apart a little bit more rather than, you know, Governor played these games the way that they, they, they made it sound this morning. The paper was that he was, this, he was his mastermind and he was basically screwing everybody from the WFP to upstate New Yorkers to conservatives to independents, etc. I think it's really hard right now to find things to sort of put the governor on a pedestal for. You know, I mean, people can say, oh, he got the, the state's fiscal matters in order, on-time budgets, etc. But after that, with all of these all of these sort of Machiavellian games he's played, it's just hard to not put those front and center. And I think... It- the New York Times, which considers itself a fairly intellectual place, I mean, the, one of the reasons they would probably take even personal affront to this more than most is that the way Cuomo behaves is to act as if people don't have the intellectual ability to see through his games. And it's, yeah. it's just crazy. I mean, the way he uh, talked about the Women's Equality Party and the way he dealt with the Moreland Commission and the way he answered questions about the State Democratic Committee's uh, spending and fundraising, all of, it, all of his answers were to suggest that nobody has the intellectual ability to figure out you know, the games that he's playing. I think that drives people crazy about him. You know, I, I saw a lot of people said that they weren't going to vote for Cuomo on the Democratic line, but they're going to vote for it on the Working Families line or the Women's Equality line. I was really surprised by a lot of that. Why not the Democratic line? I mean, if you're going to vote for Cuomo, you're going to vote for Cuomo. I don't understand this logic. The whole thing with all these ballot lines is just maddening and it's silly. And, you know, if people want reform in government in New York, that's a nice target, I'd say. I'd say paint that target right there. Get rid of the fusion voting. Mm-hmm. Get rid of the fact that you can appear on multiple ballot lines. You pick a party. 
you've run on that party line, and then somebody else could run on the smaller or third party lines, but enough with the fusion voting. I mean, it, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to be able to create these parties out of nothing. Astorino did it with a stop common core, mm-hmm. you know, pandering effort. Um, it's silly. I mean, I think the last numbers I saw, you know, the Women's Equality Party did enough to, to be on the ballot next time. Uh, the Working Families Party did quite well. And, uh, the, you know, that shows that their sort of desperate efforts to get out their vote worked. Yeah, if you look at the numbers, there are probably about forty to 50,000 voters who uh, would normally vote WFP but just couldn't bear to bring it to, to do it for Cuomo. If you just look at the numbers that Cuomo got in the WFP line versus Schneiderman and uh, – and Napoli's elections. Um, the Green Party took about 3% in, in, in those two races, even though obviously, which shows there's probably like a 3% or so of the voting population that is just actually a member of the Green Party, not just right. you know, upset with Cuomo. But I think what's interesting when you talk about third parties, this is going to be a really interesting year, and I think a really big year for the WFP. I mean, they took a serious beating from the progressive community from the second that they endorsed Cuomo. Um, you know, all kinds of people talked about defecting from them this election, and I, and I think they know that and have heard it and are going to be really rigorous in how they uh, critique Cuomo next year and the kind of organizing they do around probably what the DREAM Act or minimum wage. So I think they're going to have a really big year because they have to um, if they're going to be relevant in politics in New York. How are they going to cut a deal with Cuomo? I mean, how are they going to get any of their legislation passed, especially if you have a conservative-leaning Senate or a caucus that's leaning, you know, Republican? How is anybody going to be able to cut a deal with this man when he— he is able to deliver whatever he wants. I think the one avenue I see is the DREAM Act. Um, you know, 2016 is going to be a year where there's going to be a big Hispanic turnout, and maybe Republicans who know that this is a very tenuous majority that they have will be willing to make this the one thing where they kind of buck their base on. Um, mm-hmm. I can see that being the one area where the WFP, Cuomo, and and Skelos all see their, the writing on the wall. And it's, I mean, come on, it's not like really a huge ask to, right. you know, the New York State Dream Act. So, yeah, I, 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 mean, I think there's something to that. I also think, you know, you're talking about a governor with national aspirations as much as those took a hit with Moreland and with, you know, some of the other things going on. He still has those aspirations. I, I think there's a lot of room to question whether he'll run for a third term. Um, and, you know, maybe if even if he doesn't run in 2016, which he probably won't, but he, you know, does something else until he either looks at 2020 or 2024, who knows. But to that end, you know, the idea of him passing the DREAM Act, you know, is definitely probably something he would look at favorably in terms of those longer ambitions. The problem, though, with thinking, I think, that Senate Republicans might go along with it is that we're seeing all these challenges from their right, you know, from from sort Mm -hmm. of more moderate Republicans right by, you know, sort of Tea Party, more conservative folks. And anything you do like that that can be used against you in those races is is dangerous. Going back to upstate, you know, what I found really interesting about Cuomo is that, like you said, he's trying to run on all these different messages. He's trying to win every single voter. When I look at the numbers, he did considerably well for a second term. When you look at upstate, he really, the only thing he did was deliver that Erie County. And I don't know if that won him the election. I mean, he lost a lot downstate. He probably lost some in Hudson, in the Hudson Valley, but he really didn't deliver the rest of the state, having spent so much time and energy on upstate. Do you think that was the Buffalo Billion? Do you think it was Kathy Hochul? What won him that district, and did that win him the election? Yeah, I think it was a combination of those factors. I think the efforts that they put in and and those choices, absolutely, that that helped him. Um, I, I think in general... There is, and Astorino said this and ran on this, there's just this sort of enthusiasm gap about Cuomo, and there's this luster that's been lost about him. So, you know, the results 
made a lot of sense to me. And, you know, again, how we sort of started the conversation, the the lack of money and the lack of help for Estorino, but he was still able to muster these numbers because there's just this this enthusiasm gap about the governor. Let's talk about specific races. Indicted Libis, one, why is he significant? Yeah. <laughs> Janos loves to talk about Libis. Oh, sure. I mean, you know, he uh, is Cuomo's closest partner in the state Senate and uh, will be even more essential than he was last time, probably now that um, Jeff Klein and his folks are not going to be as relevant in the deal making equation. So, you know, we, we, we kind of thought he was going to win, though, indictment notwithstanding. You know, he had a fairly um, weak opposition and it's a conservative district. So I, it's not like that was surprising, but we are going to see a lot more of Libis in the next two years or not see him. He's but he will be there. I mean, I think the bottom line, again, you see this all the time, is how strong incumbency is. What, no matter really where it is or what it is, for the most part, voters are pretty darn forgiving these days unless they've seen you really taken off in handcuffs. It's interesting because when you look at these districts and you see the incumbents that are winning that have been indicted or have terrible reputations and records and have been slammed in the media, you know, I think of this as, okay, low, low voter turnout is a big part of this. There's a 30% turnout in New York State, um, and it's predominantly an older, whiter population uh, downstate's a little bit different than upstate, but overall, it, that's what it's looking at, a very old population. Do we need to recruit better candidates? Like, what is it here? I mean, how how is it these guys are winning? And these are the most literate people, members of the population, and they continue to vote for indicted lawmakers. Absolutely. Well, look, it's a vicious cycle in terms of uh, civic engagement and candidate recruitment, right? The, the worse New York state government looks, the less people care, and the fewer people are involved. And that, in turn, drives, you know, makes it harder to recruit somebody who'd actually want to give up a successful life to be part of this mess. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that in their defense, the Senate Democrats Democrats have been doing better in the last few years recruiting candidates, um, both successful and unsuccessful, than they used to. Um, I mean, it used to be when the Democrats were a permanent minority that it would attract the kind of people who want to sit around and do nothing all day. And, uh, you know, fortunately, they seem to be moving past that now in terms of who they're recruiting. But absolutely, I agree with you that, I mean, if you look at the Nassau County uh, Senate race where the candidate had to drop out for allegedly bilking his law firm out of millions of dollars, like surely there must be somebody more talented in Nassau County that could have been run for that Senate seat. So I agree. I think that re- candidate recruitment should be a goal of anybody. Not, it's not just a Democrat issue. I think, you know, but every party should be trying to really up the game of the people they're recruiting. Oh, if you talk, I mean, talk about any party. I mean, clearly there's not a long bench for Republicans in New York state. Mm-hmm. Again, and part of that is an ideologically based, you know, issue and a registration problem. But yeah, I think there's, I think there is a, an issue with talent all around, be, partly because the barriers for entry are so high. And if you want to talk about, you know, reform and you want to talk about things that good government groups push or that, you know, even the governor has given at least some lip service to something like campaign finance reform, but there's a variety of things. And what we've seen is not only the money that it takes, but also just the role of the party machines is still so strong. In some areas, but then in some areas it's not but you see it in the primaries that those areas of new york where the machine is kind of dying and there's been more gentrification newer candidates are able to emerge but then in these older districts these districts that haven't had much gentrification where the parties are still like you said the party machine is alive it seems like that's where cuomo can hold strong and incumbents can hold strong it's not just one thing so there's there's a variety of factors here i I mean term limits is another one we've mentioned at least three to four things already just you know not even focusing on this subject of of how to get more more talent into the the political pool here. You know, there has to be these reforms, but you're talking about asking lawmakers to, you know, limit their own power and give up, you know, it's like the whole redistricting question. I mean, there's there's all these things at play. I think 
there is a real paper tiger issue that, um, at work here, though. We saw this with Zephyr Teachout's run against Cuomo. It took a previously unknown law professor two months with no money to get 34% of the vote against the incumbent governor. And a lot of these assembly districts, what you win with, what, 2,500 votes? It's. I feel like the once you actually do get the first wave of recruits uh, in, interested in running and people perhaps outside of the traditional political channels that clubs do tend to control, uh, it would be not very hard to top a lot of these people. Yeah, I mean, it, but a lot of that goes, okay, so who's sort of recruiting the Zephyr teachouts? You know, I mean, you had in that case a pretty remarkable situation, mm-hmm. but that has to happen sort of in a district by district model. And that's, that's pretty challenging. It's a perfect storm as well. She's an anti-corruption candidate expert and, you know, clearly Moreland came in. So speaking of corruption, is Moreland going to play a role in uh, the rest of the term for Cuomo? And how is that going to affect the legislature? I mean, we, you know, we don't know what's coming down from from Mr. Barr. I mean, it's you know, it's a he's obvi- he's definitely working on things, and there's going to be things coming from him. What exactly that is, it's really hard to tell. Is it going to be anything that's an indictment for the governor? My bet would be no. I don't know that Moreland has a lot more legs for governor, you know, in terms of tarnishing Governor Cuomo. But I could be wrong. Yeah, I'm not going to comment on anything related to the investigation, except to say that in this new term, look, who's going to call him on it? What, Sheldon Silver, Dean Skelos? I don't think anybody's going to make a deal out of it. Nobody wants to resurrect not only the Moreland Commission specifically, but even the things that we worked on at the Moreland Commission. I think there is some unanimity between the governor and the legislative leaders that they'd rather not talk about those kind of issues. Who's been willing to say anything? Nobody. I mean, nobody's nobody's been really willing to speak up uh, from the legislature, you know, or elsewhere uh, within government really to say other than sheepishly here or there, uh, no, I think it should have continued. It probably mm-hmm. was on the right track. I mean, you just, you just, you know, people, and again, the strings of power. I mean, this is like people who won't, you know, haven't been willing to speak up against Sheldon Silver. Mm-hmm. It's just, that's... That's the game right now. So it is up to the U.S. attorney to make some of these, mm-hmm. you know, make some of this noise. What do you think is going to be on the agenda other than uh, the DREAM Act? And what will be passed? I mean, when you talk results from this election, whether it's nationally or New York State, you know, one of the big questions, I think, for the next two years anywhere right now is, like, is anything going to get done? I mean, I, I don't know. I really don't. I mean, there's a lot of battles coming to Albany. This will be really interesting, what, what you touched on before. Like, what is the WFP going to do in terms of rallies and campaigns and how's the mayor you know mayor de blasio how what's he gonna do and how willing is he to sort of push cuomo on things because that can come back to bite him as he's seen before so whether it's the dream act or again home rule related to minimum wage minimum wage is interesting because there are many in the progressive community who really have been hoping that more happens on economic justice both locally and at the federal level and you saw a lot of uh, states using the minimum wage issue to try to rally people during the uh, midterm elections. And I'm sure that's something that the Clinton camp is weighing how big a factor they want to make it. And so, you know, obviously that is not going to be an easy thing to pass. <laughs> Raising minimum wage is a complete, you know, and to this is of what Republican ideology is all about. I imagine we'll at least see a loud discussion of it, regardless of whether it actually passes. Ben, one thing to hope for. I mean, I think I think you could see some more movement on campaign finance reform. I think that they had this sort of very minimal effort at uh, reform, which 
obviously did not work out well in the controller's race because the incumbent said he was not participating and then the challenger didn't meet the requirements mm-hmm. to get the public funds. But so, 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 you know, that ball got rolling a tiny bit. So there's sort of something there to pick up on. The governor, even in his victory speech, named it as one of his agenda items. And there's a little bit of room to think that Senate Republicans would be on board, maybe because of what we touched on in terms of it could be helpful to get more Republicans to run around the state, which is a problem. The only issue is it could actually also help some of those more fringe Republicans run primaries. So I don't know. But that's one thing I maybe, you know, that would help government. I see that the fear of Cuomo has subsided in the Albany culture a little bit. And I think that means that we might see more good things coming out of Comptroller DiNapoli and Attorney General Schneiderman's office. I mean, they they both have done some pretty good work the last few years and have, been, you know, had their offices clash behind the scenes publicly with the governor. And I think that they might feel, you know, they pulled the same percentage of the vote that he did yesterday. I think they might feel good about stretching their legs and maybe taking a bigger lead on some issues. A little higher percentage for both of them, but mm-hmm. yeah, right around the same. Well, this has been really interesting. Um, I'm excited to look at the maps and, and, and dig in a little bit deeper and see what these trends are, are showing us. And, you know, maybe in 2016, there'll be another wave. Who knows? Um, thank you very much, Ben Max, Yanos Martin. We will uh, be continuing this coverage over the next few weeks and seeing how things play out. Thanks, Thanks. Amy. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of the Accountability Podcast. Special thanks to our guests, Janos Martin and Ben Max, as well as our producers, Andrew Tint and Marcy Mezzi, and our managing director, Dina Regab, as well as the entire Accountability Project team. It's not always campaign season, but it is always corruption season here in New York. Until next time, I'm Nomi Konst. Thanks for tuning in.